You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, welcome to episode 63. Summer's gone, but the sun's always shining when you guys are here. Good heavens, I should write slogans for Colgate. Anyway, back to business, I'll be drawing the winner of last time's Silly Symphonies competition. One of you will be winning a Silly Symphonies DVD collection. Listen on to find out if you are that person. Until then, get your crackers around this. If rising prices have given you the idea that pennies have lost their purchasing power, folks, you haven't tried Signal Ethyl Gasoline. Why do you say that? Here's why I say that. For pennies extra, you can enjoy the premium quality of Signal's famous go-farther gasoline. But what a wonderful extra dividend those pennies return in driving pleasure. An extra you can feel and hear and see. Yes, with Signal Ethel powering your motor, you can see your car step out front when the traffic light goes green. On Signal Ethel Diet, you'll hear your engine purr contentedly as you soar effortlessly uphill where pings force other cars to shift. And should an emergency call for swift acceleration, you'll feel the way your motor takes hold with smooth, eager power on Signal Ethel. When a tank full of this Signal super fuel is all it takes to discover the best performance your car can deliver, don't you think you owe it a try? My guess is you'll say Signal Ethel is the best investment you've ever made in driving pleasure. My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I assure you, I thank you. A few thank yous to disperse this week. Firstly, to Simon O'Hagan for his incredibly entertaining email, which brightened up a very dull afternoon. Thank you, sir, and have a Canterbury. Canterbury. To the wonderful J.V. Seam, who talked about this show in her stunning blog. Thank you, and take a Robotronic Canterbury. Canterbury. To Miss Judith Duncan, who made a very generous contribution to the shows last week. Thank you so much, and please accept this Barack Obama-flavoured Yes We Canterbury. Yes We Canterbury. And finally, to Mrs. Trevithick in Cornwall. Seeing as how you asked so nicely, you get a very different kind of Yes We Canterbury. While I have your attention, I should point you all towards a new podcast that has literally just begun to stalk the airwaves. 
This is called Closer to Midnight, a new show that analyzes disaster fiction in popular culture, books and TV and films. Each episode focuses on one story and its subsequent adaptations, what makes it work, its legacy and why it was created in the first place. It's hosted by Ben Taylorson and Matthew Jones, who used to host the JT Movie Podcast, and it is so unbelievably excellent to have them back making podcasts again. You all need to rush out and subscribe immediately. It is a superb show hosted by two superb people who really know what they're talking about. Search for Closer to Midnight on iTunes or go to closertomidnight.com. Hurry do! Meanwhile, over in another corner of the room. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. Yes, it's time for the godforsaken question pot again. So I reach down into the pot of questioning and find a question from Mike Bues, who asks, Hi Adam, me again, hoping you can help me locate a movie. I swear I've seen a Christmas movie about a woman who shoplifts something from a store and gets caught. It's not Remember the Night with Barbara Stanwyck, which is a good movie. The movie I'm thinking of, I think, is from the 40s, maybe 50s. The woman who steals has a young son, I think. My memory is really sketchy on this. Any idea? I feel like there is something about someone buying her a dress for a dinner she's invited to. Any idea what the heck this is? Well, Mike, this sounds a lot like Holiday Affair to me, which starred Robert Mitchum and Janet Leigh. It's from 1949, and although the plot differs ever so slightly from the one you've described, I think that may be the one you mean. Go forth, Mike Bues, and search out 1949's Holiday Affair. Okay, next question is from Tim Dunwoody, who says, Hi Adam, a few friends and I have a film club, 1930s to 1960s only. We put forward our top 10 we wanted to see and are working our way through them. The Great Dictator was top of the list and none of us had ever seen it the whole way through. Sadly, we were all a little underwhelmed. It felt a little clunky and obviously it has lost its social and historic context. Just our opinions, of course. The question equals which films, perhaps regarded as classics or seminal in their time, 30s and 40s, do you think have not actually aged well at all? P.S. If you're ever in Belfast, come and join us in my attic cinema for a screening. Firstly, thanks Tim and Film Club. If I ever make it to Belfast, I'll happily take up a seat in your attic. As to your question, ugh, Dracula starring Bela Lugosi has not aged well. Such a boring film, and so badly put together. Lugosi is great, but the rest of the film is a screaming bore. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1941 starring Spencer Tracy is another load of old tripe. The whole film seems to be aching for the same awards recognition as Frederick March's version from 1931, but it fails miserably. On a side note, if you haven't seen the 1920 silent version starring John Barrymore, you really should. It's absolutely terrifying. Really, really traumatized me as a kid. Okay, last question for this week is from Norman, who asks, Bullets and Blood Part 3. When? 
I am so sorry, Norman. I am working on it. I have been working on it ever so slowly over the past couple of months. I do apologize for the wait, and thank you for your patience. It will be worth the wait, I promise. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinky cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Well, this week I was going to talk about a very famous Golden Age director, but I suddenly came into possession of a ton of old pre-code movies, and I just couldn't resist telling you about some of the ones I discovered. First up, The Lady Refuses from 1931. Betty Compson stars here as June a good-natured London prostitute who one night is pursued through the rainy streets by two police officers. About to be arrested, she rushes to the nearest door she can find, which happens to belong to the well-to-do Sir Gerald Courtney, played by Gilbert Emery, who pretends to the police that she's his niece and rescues her from the rain. Uh, yes, well, uh, officers, what is it? You see, sir, uh, we thought she was a... Uh, <coughs> uh, we thought, my lord, that she, uh, that is... We, uh, we thought that she got lost in the fog, uh, didn't we, Albert? Oh, yes, uh, lost in the fog. My niece, lost in the little mist? <laughs> Not this young lady. However, my dear, you should have taken a taxi. If you'd telephoned, we'd have sent the car for you. Hurry now, get out of this wet coat. Dobbs has kept dinner waiting, and you know Dobbs. Good night, officers. You've been uh, commendably vigilant. Good night. Thank you, sir. His niece. Sir Gerald Courtney's niece. And us, thinking her was nothing but a... Stow that, Albert. Stow it, mate. Sir Gerald is having troubles of his own, though. His son, Russell, has been ensnared by a fortune-seeking thrill-seeker named Bertine who's doing her best to swindle him with the help of her gigolo boyfriend, Nikolai. June, it seems, has arrived at just the right time. Sir Gerald offers her $5,000 to romance his son away from the gold-digging Bertine. But there's just one hitch. June has fallen in love with Sir Gerald. Actually, there are two hitches, because Russell has fallen in love with June. You know already, don't you, June? No, no. Oh, Russell. Oh, no, you didn't know. You know how I love you, how don't I want you. Don't say it. Don't. But I have said it. You mean you don't care for me? That way, I mean? Is there... Is there someone else? Forget it, then, June. I'm sorry. Awfully sorry. Just forget what I've said. We're still pals. June. It's not... Not him. Not my father. So now we're faced with a pretty situation. Sir Gerald has paid June the prostitute to sleep with his son, Russell, who's fallen in love with June, even though she's secretly in love with the man who's paid her to sleep with his son. Charming little film, actually. Rather creaky in the best pre-code tradition. I have to say that there is some pretty wooden acting in this, but the overall situation and the encompassing glamour of the thing are such that you can overlook things like a couple of stiff lines of dialogue. Its pre-code credentials are splashed 
all over the thing. This is a film where literally everyone is having sex with each other. Men and women seem to be constantly sneaking off into corners with each other. At one point, June invites Russell into her apartment for a nightcap and there's a maid watching from the top of the stairs. Well, golden age cinema rules say that the maid will huff and puff and shake her conservative head at the scene, but this one winks and grins and slinks off to her room. Also, everyone runs around in their negligee in this. In one scene, Sir Gerald accidentally walks into a lady's changing room to find four half-naked models. There's a lot of flesh on show here. The only thing that lets it down slightly is the fact that it doesn't really know what kind of film it wants to be. One minute it's a romantic comedy, the next it's a melodrama, and then it's a drawing room romance. Personally, I enjoyed it, but it does feel a little uneven. Still, a delightfully saucy pre-code treat with a gleefully unashamed attitude to sex. Sucker punch ending, too. Another sinfest from 1931, this time with a decidedly more glamorous and light-hearted touch, is Girls About Town. The tale of Wanda and Marie, played by Kay Francis and Lillian Tashman. Two female escorts in New York who are beginning to tire of the way they make their money. Namely, buttering up middle-aged businessmen on behalf of their boss, Jerry. I'm getting pretty fed up with all this. With what? Oh, just hiring oneself out for the evening. Listen, baby, are you calling yourself names or me? It makes a difference, you know. What's the matter with you? Doesn't it make you sick to be poured by a bunch of middle-aged babbits? Sure. But there's one thing always revives me. Here's yours. Jerry Chase's autograph. 500. Despite their reservations, though, the girls have got to eat, and so they accept a job aboard a yacht where they have to make nice with a rich, practical joker named Benjamin Thomas, played by the great Eugene Pallette. Well, you ladies will find out that I'm a very funny fellow. You know, uh, unfortunately, I was born with a great sense of humor. Why, well, I could go on for days amusing you with just comical little tricks. But here's something. Now, look. Now, here it is. Here's, this is this one. And I will turn one complete revolution to glass without spilling one part of the <laughs> I love that one. Do it again. Tell me, where did you find it? I've never done it before on a boat. Well, don't do it anywhere else. The problems arise when Benjamin arrives on board with his associate, Jim Baker, played by Joel McRae, who falls in love hard with Wanda and vice versa. The thing is, Wanda has a long-forgotten husband who's determined to make a little money out of his ex-wife's new situation. As far as scandalous pre-code naughtiness goes, Girls About Town is far more seaside postcard than porn movie. There are copious shots of girls and guys in bathing costumes, and Kay Francis spends half the movie in her underwear, but it's all done with a merry grin and it's set against a landscape of some very funny comedy. Lillian Tashman, who plays Marie, is the real star of this movie. She begins as a sort of heartless fortune seeker, only interested in what she can get out of tight-fisted old Eugene Pallette, even going head-to-head -head with him in a few practical jokes. But later on, 
Her character flips completely and she decides that she wants to save Palette's marriage by making him less miserly towards his long-suffering wife. I want you should stop letting Benny make a fool of himself. Why, Mrs. Thomas. That's what he's doing. He's just making a fool of himself. And you ought to be ashamed of yourself for encouraging him. Why, Mrs. Thomas, whatever are you talking about? He gave you $3,000, didn't he? Gave me what? Some silly better of it. He never gave me a nickel. It says so, right there in the paper, right in black and white. Mrs. Thomas, he hasn't done anything but take up space around here. He hasn't even taken me to the flea circus. Tragically, Lillian Tashman was to die of cancer just three years after making this film. There is no doubt in my mind that she would have ended up being one of the all-time greats had she lived a little longer. She's absolutely wonderful in this film. So naturally playful and beguiling and so incredibly funny. A brilliant, brilliant actress. The whole story about Wanda and her ex-husband is also rather smart, even though oddly it becomes a little secondary and it will not end the way you think it's going to end. John McRae's a rather sullen romantic lead in this. He seems to be in a bad mood throughout the film, and because of that, it's difficult to see why the amazing Kay Francis is in love with him. Still, you just have to go with these things sometimes, don't you? All in all, a really sweet, really funny little pre-code comedy with a gang of very charming stars that will definitely leave you with a grin on your face. Lastly today, Stage Mother from 1933, starring Alice Brady and Maureen O'Sullivan. This is the story of Kitty Lorraine, a stage performer who's suddenly left alone and childless when her acrobat husband dies during his act. Kitty and their baby, Shirley, are taken in by her husband's God-fearing family, but after a couple of years, Kitty decides she's unable to stand their puritanical ways and flees, leaving Shirley with them so that she'll be brought up in a stable home and with a good education. Oh, be reasonable, Catherine. You'll go back to your old life. Theatres, hotel rooms, a different city each week. That's no life for Shirley. Yeah, well, I'll be with her, won't I? But that's not enough. She needs a real home, school, everything that's good for her. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe you're right. Oh, please, Catherine. Shirley must stay with us. Oh, you can't ruin that child's life. Fast forward ten years later and Kitty has saved up enough money to support her daughter and sends for the now 14-year-old Shirley, whom she immediately thrusts into a stage career. And tomorrow you're going to start your dancing lessons. Dancing? Yes, dancing. And you're going to be a big star. And you'll see your name in six-foot lights on Broadway. I don't want to go on the stage. I don't want to dance. Yes, you do, darling. Mother knows. I don't, Mommy. Yes, you do. I don't. You do. I don't. You'll dance. By the time she's 16, Shirley has become a famous dancer, and the film tells the story of both characters. We see Shirley turn from determined mother to maniacal, domineering guardian even going so far as to blackmail in order to further her daughter's career. For Shirley's part, we see this wide-eyed child snatched from her devout upbringing and thrust into the world of show business. The crippling rehearsals, the shady auditions, and the sleazy men who are all after one thing. 
Well, for a film that charts basically 20 years or so of a mother-daughter relationship, it certainly doesn't waste any time. The film is only 85 minutes long, and so the first half hour is pretty breathless. We're swept along as Kitty goes from married to widow, from mother to actress. It really does move at a pretty swift pace. The real meat of the film comes when Shirley comes back into the story and Kitty's transformation into pushy stage mother begins. 16, it don't seem right. The kid ain't had any childhood. Where does she go? Who does she see? She won't thank you for this when she learns the fun other kids are having. Yeah, well, where will those other kids be in ten years from now? For one thing, they'll have the memory of a happy childhood. And you can't buy that with all the salary checks in the world. Yeah, well, Shirley is happy. And she loves her work. She loves it because you've got the kids to hypnotize. She thinks dancing is her only salvation. Kitty, you used to be a human being once. Yeah, and what did it get me? Alice Brady is great in this. She starts as a kind of nervous widow who has no real direction and by the time the film ends she's the guttural harpy from hell it's a great performance maureen o'sullivan similarly is perfect as the fresh-faced teenager who's gradually stripped of her innocence by the time she's 16 in the film she's already looking like a wise old woman Obviously, sexual attitudes were different in 1933. Teenagers, it seems, were fair game to lusty men, and it's no different here. There's a scene where a guy enters her dressing room when she's 16, and she's not wearing much, and he forces himself on her, which she doesn't exactly hate. There's another pre-cut film all about a teenager in love with older men, which is called Under 18, so that should give you some idea of how accepted it was back then. It does mean that some parts are a little uncomfortable. Shirley actually sleeps with the romantic lead in the film played by Francho Tone while she's supposed to be 16. It's all tastefully done, though. She does love the guy, and it's obvious they'll end up married. Still, he is a much older man than her, so it's a bit pervy. Sex aside, though, this is a film about a mother and a daughter, and a rather riveting one. Plus, it it's kind of nice to see a film from this period with two female leads that isn't entirely dependent on male actors. You could quite easily have removed the leading men completely and it would have been equally as interesting. So a nice, interesting little film with a standout performance from the great Alice Brady. Do check it out. On to some radio for you then. Well, if you've listened to my documentary all about pre-code cinema, which was called Sex in Monochrome, you may remember that one of the films that caused censors a huge headache, especially in Europe, was 1931's A Free Soul, starring Norma Shearer, Clark Gable, Leslie Howard and Lionel Barrymore, a squalid tale which included forbidden lust, alcoholism and mental and physical abuse. Well, a few years after the code was implemented, the Lux Radio Theatre decided to adapt it for radio, starring Ginger Rogers, Don Amici, and Charles Winninger in an obviously more sanitized version of the story. To be honest, it is kind of rare to find a notorious pre-code film that was adapted for radio. There were a few, but not many. Anyway, we'll jog on over to that version right now, so settle back for an hour of pre-code radio thrills. 
with the Lux Radio Theatre and a free soul. I'll see you afterwards. The smallest big town in the world, the city of San Francisco. It's late afternoon, and Market Street in the business section is jammed with a tangled mass of traffic, jockeying for position, tooting impatiently at the delay. Suddenly, a long blue roadster sweeps from a side street, skids recklessly beneath the nose of an oncoming truck, and rounds the corner on two screeching tires. I used to practice on the hook and ladder. What? Oh, well, hello, Miss Ash. <laughs> and how are you? How are you, Tim? Fine, yeah, fine. <laughs> Say, there was a neat little piece of driving there. I'm sorry, Tim. I was in a hurry. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> and how's your dad, Miss Ash? Don't see him around very much. Oh, he's fine. I'll give him your regards. Great man, Steve Ash. Ought to be just as attorney, but right. Put some of these crooks behind the bars. <laughs> he does better keeping them on this side. <laughs> oh, what time is it, Tim? It's, uh, 5.45. Oh, I've got to run. Family tea at my aunt. See you around, Tim. Okay, take it easy now. Think I can make Knob Hill in three minutes? If you do, you'll land in the lockup. Look me up in cell number six. Good evening, Dean. Oh, good evening, Miss Ash. Am I terribly late? Your aunts are waiting in the drawing room, Miss. Thanks. I don't take care what you say, Stephen. It's true. Now, wait. Hello, everybody. Oh, Jan, dear. How are you, Aunt Dorothy? Evening, Aunt Grace. Good evening. Hi, Dad. Hello, Jan. Sit down. Just talking about you. Stephen, please. Well, we were, weren't we? Oh, sounds like I was on the pan. Where's Dean? Dean! Yes, Mr. Ash? Fill this glass up, will you? It's been empty for ten minutes. Yes, sir. Dad, I thought this was supposed to be a tea. Now, stop. Stop picking on me. It's sundown, isn't it? Stephen, can't you even come to a family conference without requiring stimulants? My dear sister, what occasion could arise where a man's desire for stimulants would be greater than at a family conference? <laughs> Go on, Dorothy. What was it you were going to say about Jan? Well, since it is about Jan... Do you think she should be present to hear herself discussed? Well, I'll have to let Jan answer that. You want to stay, Jan? Of course I do. I wouldn't miss it for worlds. Have you no voice at all in the matter, Stephen? Why should I? Jan ought to know her own mind. She's known it ever since she was five years old. Exactly, and that's just what's brought us where we are today. Where are we today? Your Aunt Grace is referring to certain actions of yours. Public actions. And the people you choose to be seen with in public places. Oh, so that's it. I knew this meeting was going to be called today. I knew it last Tuesday when Aunt Grace walked into the St. Alban for luncheon and saw me there with Ace Wilfong. Ace Wilfong, a common gambler. Wait a minute, wait. Is that what this is all about? Isn't it enough? Are we to stand by and see our family name dragged in the mud? What do you mean, dragged in the mud? Yeah, I'd like that question answered myself. What do you mean, the mud? What mud? The notorious dirty mud which clings to this man your daughter sees fit to be seen with. Oh, that's a laugh. Aunt Grace didn't think he looked so dirty until she found out who he was. Jan. After that, she made everybody's lunch cold for three tables around. <laughs> Stephen, are you going to allow your daughter to insult me? Is she stating facts? I certainly am. Oh, one moment, please. I have one question, Stephen, that will settle a great deal in my mind. All right, Dorothy. <clears throat> Let's have it. Did you know that Jan knew this gambler? 
Wilson? Certainly. I introduced him to her. You are? You introduced the man to her? Of course I did. Why not? Jan has met everyone in California who was worth meeting. Every fighter, every jockey, every gambler. Oh, Stephen, do be serious. I am. Since she was old enough to be my pal, she's known everyone I ever knew, and, well, why not? Oh, what does he care about anything? If he chooses to raise a daughter with the manners of a bomb. That's enough, Aunt Grace. I've heard enough. You don't like me, you never have. That makes us even. But don't forget this. No matter how much respect my father shows his sister, that's his debt. I don't owe you anything, and I don't have to answer to you for anything. Jan, dear Jan. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Grace, uh, Dorothy, I don't have to tell you what Jan has been to me all these years since, uh, well, since her mother died. She's been my comrade, my, uh, my pal. I brought her up from a baby, brought her up to face life and face it squarely. Whatever she is, I know she'll always be honest. Whatever she becomes, it'll be her own choice. But right and wrong are not going to be rubber stamped for her. If she's not strong enough to stand it, I'd rather she'd go down fighting than be a namby-pamby, cowardly, mealy-mouthed liar. And you'll do nothing to help her in avoiding temptation? If God has given her an immortal soul, won't it survive temptation? Must it forever be hedged in with a lot of fables that our very ears sicken of? No. And if in the end it strikes us both down, Jan shall be a free soul always. And that I promise you. And I can see there's nothing more to be said. No, nothing, sis. <laughs> Ladies of the jury, the defense rests. Thank heaven for that. Grand music. Want to dance, Ace? No, not unless you do. What's the matter? Inferiority complex? <laughs> no, no. Common sense, I guess. A lot of friends of yours here tonight. Oh, you're protecting my reputation again, aren't you? I wish you wouldn't, Ace. Why not? Can't do you any good being seen with me so much. Your friends must do plenty of talking. Do you think I care? You should. Maybe. It's a funny combination, you and me. I only hope it never gets you into a jam. Oh, Ace. You're as bad as my aunts and twice as old-fashioned. Oh. Hello, Dwight. Good evening, Jen. Uh, coming, Dwight? Oh, yes. Excuse me, please. Friend of yours? Oh, Dwight Sutro. And a frigid, wasn't he? That's what I'm talking about, Jen. I choose my own company, and just now you happen to be it. Thanks. Don't live long? Mm-hmm. All my life. He proposed to me once. Oh. Seems to be all right. <laughs> I thought so, too. But while I was thinking it over, his mother decided she didn't like me. And if he married me, she'd cut him off. That changed his mind. Mine, too. He must sleep bad with that on his conscience. Conscience? Having a chance to marry a girl like you and passing it up for a little jack. A lot of jack. <laughs> Couldn't be enough to square the deal. Always, <laughs> oh, you're marvelous. Oh, I've got to call Dad. Uh, wait for me, will you? Sure. I'll only be a minute. Jan. Oh, Jan. Well, the frigid Mr. Sutro. How are you, Dwight? Jan, I, I want to speak to you. You didn't seem so anxious inside. I was until I saw whom you were with. Why are you doing it, Jan? What do you hope to gain by it? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, if it's just to make me jealous or something. Jealous? Oh, do you think I'd go to the trouble of making you jealous? 
Then I suppose it doesn't mean a thing to you anymore that we're not the way we used to be? Mm-mm. Not a thing, Dwight. Well, it does to me. Really? Has your mother changed her mind again? Oh, that's not fair, John. I asked you to wait a little while until I won her over. And suppose you didn't win her over. I'd lose again, wouldn't I? No, Dwight. The man I marry has got to want me more than anything else in the world. Just me. And nothing else must count. I do want you, Jan. Oh, no, you don't. I do. Give me a chance to prove to you how much I do. No, Dwight. It's cold. <laughs> you know what I mean. You don't interest me anymore. Maybe someday I'll think you're swell, and if I do, I'll call you up. Unless you should happen to meet that ideal man of yours in the meantime. Mm, of course. Maybe you've met him already. Perhaps. Ace Wilfong, I suppose. <laughs> you might be right about that, too. Good night, Dwight. <laughs> for last night, boss. The takings were deposited this morning. Okay. Say, the house is doing swell, Ace. Over 4,000 bucks at roulette alone. And there's a crowd out there tonight fighting for the privilege of losing their dough to you. Say, we'll be swimming in it soon. Yeah. Say, look, Abe. You've known me for a long time. You saw me start this thing, you watched it grow. Yep, that's right. Am I a smart guy, Abe? Or is it just luck? I don't know. Both, I guess. But what I mean is... Suppose I'd gone into some other racket, something on the up and up. Would it come along like this, Hayes? Or would I be walking around with holes in my pants? Hey, you ain't thinking of getting out, are you? You can't do that, Ace. I'm thinking of a lot of things. Yeah. We've been watching that here lately. We? Who's we? The boys and me. She's got you running around in circles, ain't she? Shut up, Abe. Now, listen, bosses, for your own good. These society guys, they don't... Shut you. You don't talk about her in this place, do you get it? You or anyone else. You can spread that around with the boys. If I hear any one of them mention her name, I'll pitch him out in his ear. Hey, boss, there's a dame here to see you. Hello, Abe. Chan, what are you... All right, Abe, beat it. Right, okay, Who's come on. Chan, what's the idea? Well, now, there's a nice reception. What's the matter? Women play here, you told me yourself. Well, sure, but this is no place for you, Jan. I didn't come to play. I came to see a man at his game, Ace. If he's a fighter, I like to see him train. If he's a doctor, I like to see him operate. If he's a gambler, I like to see him gamble. Well, you're not going to see me gamble. You're going home. Oh, don't be silly, Ace. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's not what you're doing. It's what people think you're doing. I do what I like. I'll always do what I like. That's my creed, Ace. Yeah? It may work now. It won't always. Why not? You'll be getting married one of these days. <laughs> do you think that would make any difference? I wouldn't marry a man who didn't know me well enough to know that if I wanted to do something, it was all right to do it. I see. Well, aren't we having a chummy little talk? We'll continue it, lady. Hello, tell Jack to bring the car around. I'll be right down. Uh, listen, have the elevator waiting. Come on, Jen. Oh, you, you're being very masterful tonight. We'll leave by the side door. I'm not so sure I like you when you're being such a strong character, Ace. Sorry? No, here's the elevator. Well... Dad! Hello, Jen. Oh, how are you, Ace? Hello, Steve. Just came up to lose a little odd change. Dad, where have you been? My dear daughter, I had hoped that was not too obvious. I've been wooing Bacchus. I suppose you know the office has been trying to reach you all day. Why? You've got to be in court tomorrow at 10 o'clock. I shall be there on the dot. Run along now, run along. Oh, where are you going? There's a game inside called Poker Dice, which after 20 years still intrigues me. <laughs> Good night, Jan. Dad. Hi, Nice, Abe. He'll be all right. I'll tell Abe to look after him. 
You go along downstairs. I'll see you in the car. Don't be long, Oh, that's such a rotten shame, Ace. He's so brilliant on one side, and, and on the other, he's so overbalanced. He always knows just what other people need, and he, he does it for them. But for himself, he... he can't do anything. Oh, God, it's terrible. Oh, Jan, dear. I've watched him ever since I was a little kid. Playing with liquor year after year. It's been working on him. And he doesn't know... You can't see what it's doing to Jan, me. Jan, Jan, please don't. I wish I could help you. I want to, Jan. You can't. No one can. Will you let me try? Somehow? You would, maybe, if... If you knew... How much I love you, Jan. Oh, why did you wait so long to say that? Oh, I've wanted to for weeks. And I've wanted to hear it for months. Jan, you're... You're so far above me, it scares me to think of it. Then, then don't think of it. Oh, you're wonderful, Jan. Will you always say that? Oh, always. I'll take a chance on anything, but when I place a bet on you, that's a sure thing. Jan, will you marry me? Well, of course I will. I mean, soon. How soon? A week or so. A week? And leave Dad? Oh, he needs me, Ace, now more than ever. He'll always need you. But that's all right. We can all stick together. Live together? Why not? Oh, darling. Oh, oh let me think. I, I'm, I'm not stalling. It's just, just let me think it out all by myself. I'll call you. When? Tonight, late. After, after Dad gets home. <laughs> Then the gods smiled. <laughs> they beamed. 250 in the hole, and I threw five kings. <laughs> A windfall. <laughs> Where's my glass? Please, Dad, don't. What? No more tonight. I want to tell you something. Something important, Dad. What could be more important than five kings? <laughs> Dad, I'm going to marry Ace Wilfong. What's that? I'm going to marry him. Oh, Jan, you're, you're not serious. Of course I'm serious. I love him. You know what he is, Jan? What he will always be? A gambler? Oh, we know lots of gamblers. And their wives and prize fighters and jockeys and bookmakers. But and... I didn't expect you to marry them. Good Lord, girl, we can associate with anybody, but we don't marry them. That isn't what you taught me. You said a hundred times... Jan, if you aren't ashamed of what you do, and if people see you aren't ashamed, they'll respect you. Now, haven't you said that? Oh, no matter what I said, you can't marry Ace Wilfong. Why? Don't you like Ace? Yes, as a man, I like him very much. And as a character, he interests me. But as a husband for my daughter, how can you expect me to like him? He's square. He's clean. He's... Brave. I believe that. And I tell you, Dad, that he loves me and... And I love him. Oh, you've been in love often enough before. Then I ought to know, oughtn't I, Dad? If it, if it were the very first time, I might be mistaken. I tell you, I know, I know. Oh, I'll never love anyone else. Oh, Dad, please believe me. Jan, Jan. Oh, you can't do this thing, dear. 
You mustn't do it. Listen, I know I'm no good. I've made you suffer, and I loathe myself for it. But you're all I've got. I can't let you be unhappy, ashamed. You can't marry Ace Wilfong. You say you loathe yourself for making me suffer. Can't you see how you're making me suffer now? It's for you I'm doing it. You know I love you, Jan. I'll do better. I promise I'll do better. Dad, we're both gamblers, you and I. No more than that. We've been good gamblers with life always. Now, I want to gamble with you for the limit. Yes? I'll make you a bet, and I'll give you fair odds. I promise you I won't marry Ace Wilfong. I won't, I won't even see him. If you promise me you'll never drink again. Is it a bet? I give up the man I love because you think he's bad for me. And you give up what you love because, oh, I know it's killing you. Is it a bet, Dad? It's a bet, Jan. Thanks, Dad. The defense rests. Good night, Dad. Good night. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to be alone. Oh, sure, I know. Sure, honey. Hello? Give me main 0642. Hello? Hello? I'd like to speak to Ace Wilfong, please. of a free soul in just a moment. In the meantime, we switch our scene to Hollywood to a shop on Sunset Boulevard out near the city limits of Beverly Hills. Inside the shop, a young lady very much talked of in Hollywood today is looking over some clothes. A sales girl is helping her. Oh, I think it's so wonderful you're getting that part. I read about you this morning. Why, well, you're famous. <laughs> Thank you. It is wonderful. But really, all I have time to think about is getting ready to go on location. I have practically no warm clothes. What about sweaters? Let me show you some of our new cashmeres. They're really lovely. Oh, I adore that one. It's so marvelously soft and light. And it fits so nicely, too. Yes, but it would only stay just as nice. Oh, but it will if it's washed right. Here are the directions right on the tag. Use cool water and Lux flakes. Would you wash a sweater like that? Oh, yes. Washing is good for wool, provided you use Lux. Sweaters shouldn't be rough with a cake soap. They may shrink right up and get stiff and harsh. I know Marie uses Lux for my lingerie and stockings. Well, if she'll just stick to Lux of sweaters, too, she'll keep the colors nice and the fit perfect. You see, there's no rubbing with Lux flakes. And it hasn't any harmful alkali in it either, the way some soaps have. Anything safe in plain water is safe in Lux flakes, you know. All right, I'll take it. And just so I don't forget, I'll stick a memo in my purse. Marie, take along plenty of big boxes... Of luck. Now let's look at coats. We return now to Mr. DeMille and our play. We resume a free soul, starring Ginger Rogers, Charles Winninger, and Donna Michi. For six long weeks, Steve was faithful to his pledge and Jan to hers. It's late at night now, and in Jan's room, a single light is burning. The girl paces the floor nervously. 
and turns quickly as she hears someone at the door. Who is it? Dad. Oh, Dad, I've been worried about you. Where have you been? Jan. Oh, Dad. Oh, Dad. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, oh, Jan. Oh, you've broken your pledge. You promised. I know that, but that's why I came up here. You know what you said. You know what I said. You know what we agreed, Dad. I know. I'm going to marry him. You've broken your part of the bargain. You can't stop me now. I'm licked, Jan. It's licked me, but I tried. Oh, I tried. Dad. You could have gone upstairs. I never would have known. Sure, but that that wouldn't be playing the game fair, would it? Oh, Dad. Front page, too. Jan Ash to wed Ace Wilfong. <laughs> Looks like we're right, honey. <laughs> it's the combination. Jan Ash to wed Ace Wilfong. Anything wrong, Dwight? Oh, no, no. Not a thing. It's swell with me. Paper, Mr. Ash? All right, go out, please. Jan Ash to wed Ace Wilfong. Oh. Hello? Oh, hello, darling. Where are you? Oh, were you coming home to dinner? Oh, Ace, why not? Well, I know it's business, darling, but it's ages since I've seen you. Well, not since last night, Ace. Oh, please. Well, but I've invited some people over. Oh, I see. All right, Ace. Oh, I know you're sorry. All right. I'll be up when you get home. Clara. Yes, ma'am? Mr. Wilfong won't be home to dinner. Call up everyone. Say I'm sick or something. Yes, ma'am. Oh, uh, Mr. Sutro called again. Dwight? What did he say? He asked if you'd have tea with him this afternoon. I told him you were busy. Oh. Oh, well, uh, well, call him back. Tell him I'm not as busy as I thought. <laughs> Sure, that's enough, Steve. Sure, I'll have this back to you in a couple of days, Ace. And the other, too. Things haven't been so hot here lately. Uh, but they'll be picking up... Oh, forget it. Uh, you seen anything of Jan? Uh, Jan's a little disappointed in me these days. What do you mean? Well, uh, she kind of guessed I was making a few loans from you and kind of got her pride. <laughs> Why, should it's all in the family? She sees it a little differently, Ace. Uh, she sees it as a man taking money from the fellow he didn't want his daughter to marry. Oh. You didn't know that, did you? Uh, that I didn't want her to marry you. Oh, I guess I did. I wasn't sure why, though. Well, you understand horses, Ace, don't you? Yes, yeah, some. Well, humans are the same. It, it, it was the, the blood... I didn't want to cross it. You figured my breeding wasn't right, hmm? Well, what I meant was I knew her strain, and I didn't know yours. Can't man be a thoroughbred unless he's got a name they know for a thousand years? Sure he can. And you're proving that to me every day, proving I was wrong. <laughs> I'm not talking about the money, either. You know that. Oh, forget that. But you were right, too, in a way. 
I mean, if I was bred right, uh, your strain, uh, I'd know more about things. I wouldn't have to ask about, well, about something that's been on my mind for, for a long time. Well, let's hear it. Now, this isn't a squawk, Steve. I, I just want you to put me right. Well? Is it okay, now that Jan's my wife, is, is it supposed to be correct for her to let guys who knew her before she was married keep on hanging around? Does she? Well? Well, is it all right? Yes, it's all right. Why not? But she's my wife. Has she done anything not worthy of a wife? She goes out riding with this guy. Well, because she married you, should that keep her from motoring on a nice day in nice company? He has a nice company. I met him. He's a rat. I think you know what I'm talking about. Well, I, I wouldn't let it worry me. Jan's the skipper of her own boat. She must know what she's doing. Yeah? I hope so. That's you, Jan? Darling, I didn't know you were here. You're home early tonight. Oh, that's more than I can say for you. <laughs> here, take my wrap, will you, darling? Sure, sure. Oh, I'm tired. We were dancing at the Three Spades. Dwight Sutro? Yes. Why? That's three times in a week, isn't it? Well, why not? I've, I've got to do something. I can't just sit here every night waiting. You wouldn't expect me to. No, Please. But... We've been married eight months, and all during those eight months, I think you and I were out together every bit of six times. We saw three shows, two ball games, and one rotten fight. Now, if that isn't a record for a pair of great lovers, I don't know. Oh, I know it's been tough for you, darling. For me, too. But I've had to stick close to the place, Jan, to wind things up. What? I'm getting out next week, selling the place. Ace, no. Sure, it's no life for you, stuck with a gambler. I'm going into something else. Something on the up and up. I've got enough dough to start with, and, well, maybe we get to see each other once in a while. Oh, darling, that's marvelous. You're doing this just for me, aren't you? For us. But you can do something for me, if you want. Well, of course, darling. What? <laughs> well, I, I don't know how to say it without sounding silly, but... Uh, it, it, it'd make me a lot happier if you weren't so chummy with this Sutro guy. Well, it does sound silly, Ace. I told you before we got married I had to be free. I don't consider it necessary to account for myself to anyone. But this much I'll tell you. I should have gone mad these months without Dwight. As bad as that, hmm? As bad as that. There's no harm in going places. Dwight and I were kids together. Why? Oh, I know what he is, but he's harmless where I'm concerned. If I could believe that, I wouldn't beef. I want you to be free, Jan, but isn't, isn't there some other freedom that's a little less like playing with nitroglycerin? Ace, I won't be bossed, and that's that. Oh, no, it isn't. No, Jan, you've got to give me something else besides this free soul stuff. That don't mean anything to me. That was all right for you and your dad, but not for me. That agreement between dad and me was our faith, our faith in each other. Ace, I wouldn't live with you two minutes if I thought you didn't trust me. I do. That's why I can't have other people thinking what I know isn't so. I won't have it. I warned you never to treat me as you would any other girl you've ever known. You don't understand my training, and you don't understand my code. And you don't understand mine. What I win belongs to me. Do you get that? Me. And I won't allow anybody to throw crooked dice in the game I'm in. And you're mine, and the game is mine, and this rat is out to break it up for me. But he won't, you see? Take your hands off of me. Don't you ever do that again, Ace. And don't ever try to bully me into anything. I've done what I felt like doing all my life. I'll go on doing it. 
that if I want to see Dwight Sutro as long as it's honest and clean, you've nothing to say about it. Do you hear nothing? All right. I won't bother you again. Where are you going? I'm going out. Where? I said I wouldn't bother you. Well, I... You mind if I come in? Why, no. Uh, of course not. Make yourself comfortable, Will Fong. Thanks. I'm not staying. Oh, long enough to have a drink? Not even that. I can say what I came to say in a couple of words. Yes? Centro, I want you to stay away from my wife. I haven't wanted to say that. You forced my hand. But stay away from it, you hear? I hear, yes. And you will or else. You don't know much about men like me, but... Maybe you can figure out what I mean by that. Well? I'll see your wife just as often as she'll allow me to see her. It's entirely her affair. And mine. She's married to me. That, I should say, is her misfortune. But she's entitled to some happiness. And if she favors the company of a man of her own world, then I shall do my best to be that company. And just what can you do about it? I can do this about it. If you ever go near my wife again, I'll kill you. Remember that. The private dick just reported. Oh, what did he say? Now, listen, boss, you don't want to get so... What did he say? Well, he's been trailing Sutro since Wednesday. Today, about 3 o'clock, Sutro gets in his car and goes up to the house. Go on. Well, I... I... My wife went out with him? Yeah. Yeah, they went out for a ride or something. But look, boss, maybe... Shut up. But I just... Shut up. When he calls again, tell him to keep on the job. I want to know every move Sutro makes. You get it? I got it. Dwight, I felt a drop of rain. Oh, it's all right. We'll be at Thwaites in a couple of minutes. Oh, don't you think we'd better put the top up? We'll be drenched. <laughs> you won't melt. Oh, Dwight, please. Oh, all right. This will make you feel any better. Hurry, Dwight. Look out, look out. Oh, goodness. Oh, now I hope you're satisfied. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jan. Look at my dress. I can't go to Thwaites looking like this. Come on. We'll go and get dried off. Where are we going? My place. It's only a minute. Hold tight. There you are. Put your feet up on the fireplace. Oh, I feel like a sponge. One sharp twist and I could wring myself out. I must be a sight. And don't you believe it. You look beautiful. With water trickling off my chin, I'll just bet I do. You'll always look beautiful to me, Jan. You know that, don't you? It's very kind of you, I'm sure. Don't, Jan. Don't what? Don't keep putting me off like that. You shouldn't, you know. We can't just go on laughing and pretending forever. It's not a laughing matter. Not with me. I love you, Jan. Give me a cigarette, please. Oh. oh. Of course. I wish you hadn't said that, Dwight. Why? Well, it's been such fun being with you. Now you've spoiled it. Because I told you I loved you? That's not the first time I've said it. It's the first time since I've been married to Ace. I'd like to believe it's the last. It isn't. I'll never stop telling you. Then I'm sorry for you. And sorry for our friendship. You see, Dwight... I love my husband. Oh, how can you say that? You're not happy with him. But I am. Oh, Jan, dear, don't be a fool. I thought you were above petty little conventionalities. He's not your kind, Jan. And you are, I suppose? I love you. I could make you happy. Oh, Jan, darling. Will you get my coat, please? Jan. I'm leaving. I'm sorry, Dwight. 
It seems I've, I've led you into believing something about me that isn't true. My coat, please. You, you can't just leave it at that. I can, and I'm going to. Good night. Jan. Jan, darling, Let listen me to go. Me. I won't. You don't mean what you're saying. You're putting on an act. You're... Maybe that'll prove to you that it isn't an act. That it never has been, that it never will be. Hello? Who? Abe who? All right, put him on. Hello? Hello, talk louder, please. Who's on his way? Oh, I can't hear you. Will you please tell me what you're talking about? All right, Sutro, where is she? May I ask what you're doing here and what you mean by Don't breaking... Don't give me that. Where is she? She was here a minute ago. You're mad. Oh, no, I'm not. I've had you followed for a week. You brought her here. Now, where is she? Get out of here. I warned you, Sutro. You wouldn't listen to me. I warned you. Stay away from me. Stay away. Don't or... reach for a gun, Sutro. Don't reach for a gun or I'll let you have it. What I'm going to do to you, I can do with my own two hands. You let go of me. Get away from that drawer. Broadcasting system. One of the greatest producers the American stage has ever known, William A. Brady, would be a most welcome guest on any program of the Lux Radio Theater. His presence tonight, between the acts of our play, is doubly appropriate. For he not only brought a free soul to Broadway, but during its run there, enacted the role of Stephen Ash. His countless other hits include such immortals as Way Down East and Trilby. Husband of Grace George and father of Alice Brady, Mr. Brady's life reads like the history of the theater. One of the giants of the sporting world, too. He revolutionized boxing during the years that he managed the famous, famous champion, Gentleman Jim Corbett. On the stage, his champions included David Warfield, Catherine Cornell, Helen Hayes, Mary Nash, Henry Hull, and Douglas Fairbanks. The Lux Radio Theater extends its stage to, to New York City and brings you William A. Brady. Thank you, Mr. DeMille. It's the privilege of a young man to look forward and an old man to look back. I've been close to the theater since the days of Edwin Booth. I've seen motion pictures grow from nothing at all into an international pastime. And radio, from a howling, static-filled discord to its statue of perfection, exemplified by the Lux Radio Theater, the sponsors of which, by the way, deserve tremendous credit for the part that they have taken in the present rejuvenation of the American theater. In my youth, variety was the spice of life. For example, some 30 years ago, I managed a heavyweight championship fight on one night and presented Robert B. Mantell in his first performance of King Lear on the following night. People often ask me, what was my proudest moment? Well, it was at the time that I made Helen Hayes a star or discovered Douglas Fairbanks 
or the night when Corbett knocked out the mighty John L. Sullivan. It could be any of these, but down in my heart I still feel the thrill never since duplicated that came to me as a skinny, ragged little boy. It was the night that I sat in the old Booth Theater on 23rd Street, and when, from my seat in the last row of the top gallery, I heaved a marble during the sleepwalking scene of Macbeth and scored a direct hit on the bass drum miles below me in the orchestra pit. Now, that's one way of making a hit in the theater. Most of my life since then has been working for hits from behind the footlights. There is one honor there that I share with Lux Flakes, for they've played a star role backstage in many a Broadway hit. As a producer, I know they are the tops in wardrobe department. Today, it's the Hollywood costume to take athletes and turn them into actors. <laughs> well, it's nothing new, my friends, nothing new. It started long, long ago in the golden days of boxing when Jim Corbett would play Armand in Camille and John L. Sullivan would stand them up in honest hearts and willing hands. Many youngsters claim that there are few fields not overcrowded today. But let a young fella bust loose. Let him find a spot that's not so crowded. Let him take a chance, and luck or stubbornness will see him through. After all, it looks very much like the same old world to me. My congratulations to you, Mr. DeMille, to Miss Rogers, to Mr. Winninger, and to Mr. Amici for giving a play very dear to my heart. My congratulations to Lux Flakes and to all the people who buy Lux and so made such a superb presentation possible. Thank you. Thank you, William Brady. We're back in Hollywood now, where a free soul with Ginger Rogers, Don Amici, and Charles Winninger is continued. It's early the next morning. In his cell in the city jail, Ace is seated on the edge of an iron cot, his shoulders drooping, his head in his hands. Suddenly he hears footsteps in the corridor and springs to his feet, every nerve alert. Five minutes, miss. Thank you. Oh, Ace. Jim. Oh, Ace, darling, what have I done to you? It's, it's all right, honey. Now, don't cry. I killed a rat, that's all. Oh, why did you? There was nothing, Ace, wrong, Ace, I swear it. You've got to believe that. Regardless of what happens, you've got to know that, Ace. I do know it. That's what makes this bearable, Jan. I never doubted you. Not down deep, I didn't. I was just all on fire inside. I didn't go there to kill him. Just to give him a scare. He went for a gun. Oh, how can life do such things to people? I love you, Ace. I've never loved anyone but you. I wish I could take my heart out and show it to you. Shh, please, please. It's my fault. Everything is my fault. I thought I was a free soul, and I'm not. Because I belong to you. It came to me last night when you didn't come home, and then, then I heard, and I thought about you here and me there. Oh, I died, Ace. I died, I tell you, if I ever live again, I... Honey, honey, please stop it. You, you don't know what you're saying. Look at me. I'll be all right. Everything's going to be all right. Oh, it will, Ace. It's got to be. They've never hanged a man for a thing like this. I was up there to Sutro's yesterday. 
And when the jury knows that, they Wait, Jan. Listen. You, you've got to promise me something. Anything, Ace? I... You mustn't spill that stuff about being up there, Jan. You know what I mean. It'll... It'll seem tough, but... That's the way I'm going to play it. You mean you... You wouldn't let me go on the stand to save you? Yeah, that's just what I mean. What the... No, sweet, we can't. You married me against the wishes of everyone, even your father. No matter what happens to me, we can't use your good name to save my neck. My good name? Oh, you poor crazy darling. Do you think that means anything if you're taken away from me? Oh, no, Ace. I'd yell it from the top of the ferry building that I was there. That it was my fault. No, you won't. I fixed it so you won't. You're not going on the stand. Who can stop me? Your father. He's going to defend me. Dad? Oh, no, Ace, you can't. Oh, he's my father, but... But I know he... He can't save you. He's through, Ace. He hasn't had a case in months. He... Well, he couldn't even plead one. I'm laying a bet on him. Can't you? Oh, I see. You don't care about being saved. You're letting him defend you because you know he'll... He'll never let me testify. No, no, Jane. It's true. You've no confidence in him yourself. You couldn't have. If he does what I asked, that's all I want. When you arrived, officer, you say Dwight Sutrow was already dead. Uh, that's right. And, uh, and Wilfong was standing by the window looking out. Mm-hmm. And what happened then? Well, he, he handed me the gun and he said, here's the gun that killed him. It's mine. I did it. Thank you. Your witness, Mr. Ash. Mr. Ash, the attorney for the state has offered the witness. No questions, your answer. Do I understand, Mr. Ash, that you have no wish to cross-question any of the state's witnesses? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Very well. Witness is excused. The defense will proceed with its case. Call your first witness. If it pleases the court, there will be no witnesses for the defense. What's that? Your Honor, the defense rests. No, no! No, Your Honor, you can't let him do it! Jan! Jan, go back to your seat. I won't! trying to protect me, Your Honor. They won't let me take the stand because they know what I'll say, that I was in Dwight Sutro's apartment the night he was shot. Jam. That my husband knew I was there. That's why he came. Your Honor, I asked the court's permission oh, to speak please. for a moment with my wife. The prisoner will not address the bench. But, Your Honor. Quiet. Quiet, please. <laughs> young lady, will you please take your seat? Mr. Ash, do you wish to present this young woman as a witness? Oh, Dad, please. Please, you've got to. You don't know what you're doing. Jan, well, Mr. Ash? The defense rests, Your Honor. There will be no witnesses. <laughs> Has the state concluded its case? We have, Your Honor. And the attorney for the defense will sum up, please. Thank you. Your Honor, gentlemen of the jury, you have seen in this court a man on trial for his life. A man accused of the foulest of crimes, premeditated murder, 
Murder in the first degree, for which there is but one penalty, death. You have heard witnesses for the prosecution and none for the defense. You have seen a young woman, my own daughter, rise in defense of her husband and tell you... I object, Your Honor. The woman was not a witness. Her testimony was not entered into evidence. Objection sustained. Proceed, please. Uh, the district attorney is right, gentlemen. You must strike from your minds everything that that woman said. Strike it from your hearts if you can. You heard that woman. You know she spoke the truth. And you know that if you bring in a verdict of guilty, you will be placing a rope around the neck of an innocent man. Objection! There's been no evidence by the defense to prove the accused innocent. Objection overruled. I take it Mr. Ayesh is dealing in certain uh, attendant circumstances? Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Attendant circumstances. Circumstances not born of the moment, day or hour, but wicked, profane, and damnable teachings. Look at that girl. The wife of the accused. You wouldn't think that that child's mind was full of poisonous fallacies. It's God's truth. For since she was old enough to listen, I have dinned into her ears that she was a free soul. I told her she must not be a hypocrite or a coward. I cried out to her that she must follow her desires and be honest and open with them. These were my teachings. And may God forgive me. She had no mother. Could we expect her to see that her father was a mountebank, a trickster, a fool? Her desires, innocent as they might have been, led her into the company of another man, despite the wishes of her husband. Are you beginning to see who is the guilty man? Do you reason now who should be on trial here today? I, Stephen Ash! Ace Wolfong held the pistol, but my hand pulled the trigger. There's only one freedom. Knowing and obeying God. There never has been but one man big enough to be a free soul on this earth, and they nailed him to a cross. But he forgave. Yes. And that's what I'm asking you to do today. I ask you to forgive this man. I ask my daughter to forgive me. Oh, Dad, Dad. Gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a decision? We have. We find the defendant not guilty. <laughs> Not guilty. Ace, Ace, darling. Oh, Jim, dear. He did it for us, Jan. He gave us our life again. Oh, Dad, Dad, look at me. You were wonderful, darling. And I do forgive you. I forgive you everything. Dad. Dad, don't you hear me? Well, don't, 
Don't just sit there, darling. Wait a minute. Steve. Steve, what, what, what's the matter? Steve. Is he? Please don't, Jan. He's happy. The defense rests. And that was the classic A Free Soul. Do check out the film if that has piqued your interest. It's a very clammy affair. On to the competition then. I asked you to like the competition post on Facebook or retweet the special tweet on Twitter, and many of you did. So I throw your names into the random omulator, and it picks as the winner... Bridget Cottrell. Bridget Cottrell, you have won a Silly Symphonies DVD set. Send me a message on either Facebook or Twitter or an email at adam at attaboyclarence.com and I'll get this out to you now. Thanks for entering, everyone. Another competition next week. That is it from me for this show, though. Thank you for listening, and I shall be with you again in two weeks. Until then, take very good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.